Well, let me invite you uh, now to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 8. And we'll be looking at the first uh, four verses of this uh, chapter. Breaking new ground today, starting a new chapter. is always something to celebrate, it seems like. So in Acts uh, chapter 8, I'll begin reading in verse 1. I'll read the first four verses. And since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, I encourage you to give very careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, that is, Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, last week we saw the death of one of God's most eminent servants, uh, Stephen numbered among the seven. In the hour of his death, Christ drew near to Stephen in a very profound and miraculous way and so supported him in that hour that though he walked through the Valley of the shadow of death, he feared no evil, for Christ was with him. It was the precious nearness of Christ to Stephen's soul that brought him to his final two earthly utterances. The first was, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was ready to die. Uh, Dr. Charles Hodge says that It is important that when we come to die, that we have nothing to do but to die. Our conscience is is clear. There's nothing that we wish we would have done, that we regret that we didn't do. It's a blessing that when it comes to our time to die, that that's all we have to do is just to die. And that really describes Stephen. He saw and felt the Lord's nearness and was ready to step across a threshold into eternity and into the waiting arms of his Savior. His very last words were even more profound, I guess, when he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And though previously the Sanhedrin had responded with a loud cry for vengeance against Stephen, Stephen answered with a loud cry for mercy. No anger, no bitterness, no grudge against those who so unjustly accused him, condemned him, and executed him, but only a heart of compassion for those who sinned against him. So that in Stephen's death, the church lost a great servant. The saints lost a beloved brother, but heaven gained its first martyr for Jesus Christ. And out of this great tragedy of the execution, the stoning, the violent killing, the murder of Stephen, God will bring good out of the ashes of his death. 
We actually see that in our passage this morning of chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to see that God does an amazing work through this uh, very tragic death of this godly young man. We'll see, number one, that Stephen's martyrdom will ignite persecution. That persecution will ignite dispersion. And the dispersion will ignite evangelism. And all of that will accomplish God's predestined purpose. Uh, Stephen's death will set into motion a series of events that are entirely in God's control and will accomplish God's plan because a great persecution is going to break out that God will use to accomplish the Great Commission. Back in 19, uh, I'm sorry, back in 1572, there was a wave of Catholic mob violence against the French reformers uh, throughout France, particularly in Paris. And the French reformers were known as the Huguenots. And this great massacre began on St. Bartholomew's Day. It's actually called the, the Great St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre or Slaughter. And many of the most wealthy and prominent Huguenots had gathered in Paris, which was largely a Catholic city at that time, to attend a royal wedding. And the massacre began, and it was started by the ringing of the church bells at the Paris church where the kings normally worshipped. And once those church bells began to ring, that was the sign to begin this great massacre and the king's troops and the men went out through the city and they began to slaughter all of the French Protestants, the reformers. Some say as many as 40,000 to 100,000 believers were slaughtered during this, uh, this great massacre. Calvinist Protestants, for that's who they were, that's who the Huguenots were, were butchered in cold blood. And in a very similar way to the ringing of the bell, and the and I've actually seen that in the bell tower of the church in Paris that started this great massacre. So Stephen's death, in a very similar way, become the ringing of the bell, the sign, the the, the motivation to begin a great persecution upon God's people throughout the city of Jerusalem. The persecution. Before this time was aimed primarily at the apostles. But now with Stephen's death, the bell rang. And the persecution now began to to flood out upon all who carried the name of Jesus Christ. Prominent in this persecution is a man by the name of Saul. We have first met Saul in chapter 7, verse 58 where they laid the robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is as they were uh, carrying out the stoning of Stephen. This uh, persecution that is going to ignite is like a, a violent thunderstorm. And Saul becomes like a tornado in the midst of that thunderstorm of persecution. He will carry the lead on it in so many different ways. But we, after being uh, introduced to him in chapter 7, verse 58, 
we now read of him again in chapter 8, verse 1. Let me uh, begin by just going over some of the pedigree of Saul, some of the background of this, this young man who's going to have such a, a horrendous role in the persecution of the church. Uh, later in Acts chapter 22, uh, Saul, who is now the Apostle Paul, describes himself as a Hellenistic Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. So he's a Hellenistic Jew, means he's a Greek-speaking Jew. He was born in Tarsus, up in in the uh, region of Cilicia. And at an early age, apparently his family moved to Jerusalem, where he was educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, Paul described himself again in Acts 22. In uh, Philippians chapter 3, he described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. So he studied under Gamaliel. We, we met Gamaliel already, remember, back in Acts chapter 5. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a proud Pharisee, zealous to the core for the cause of Judaism. Now, his teacher, Gamaliel, was a leading Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. He was known to be a very sober-minded man. He was careful in reasoning. He argued caution, remember, in how to treat the apostles back in Acts chapter 5, exhorting them not to kill the apostles as the Sanhedrin was wanting to do, lest they be fighting against God. And Saul was one of his disciples. Uh, and Gamaliel, again, was known to be a man of, uh, who was a compromiser in many ways. Well, of course, Saul was nothing like his teacher. I don't know if, for those of y'all that have seen the Batman movie, uh, in one of the scenes where Bruce Wayne uh, went to his mansion where they were holding a great birthday party for him, And he pretended to be drunk and insulted all of his guests on his birthday, ran them out of his his mansion. And one of the guests walked over to him and said, the apple has fallen very far from the tree, Mr. Wayne. Meaning that he was very unlike his father. And in a similar way, Saul was very unlike his teacher. The apple had fallen very far from the tree. His teacher, Gamaliel, was a thoughtful man, a man of moderation. Saul was the opposite. He was a zealous, ruthless, passionate man committed to the faith of the Jews. The persecution uh, that he brings upon the church, uh, we read of in verse 1, says that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, putting Stephen to death, He was in hearty agreement. This implies that he did it with great delight. It was a a pleasure in doing it. His consent to Stephen's death had no regret, no reluctance. It was something that he enjoyed doing. He had complete satisfaction. He was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And down in verse 3, we're told that Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison, awaiting their trial and awaiting their execution. 
The word to ravage in verse 3 means to, to cause severe injury, great harm. It speaks of a brutal and a sadistic cruelty. The violence is described as of a wild boar tearing a victim's body apart. And the fact that the word ravaging is in the Greek in perfect tense means it was his ongoing habit. That was his lifestyle. He was ravaging the church. It wasn't an isolated event. This was something he committed to every day. We're told that he would break into house after house intent on flushing out and capturing and punishing every Christian he could find. And notice that he was dragging off men and women and putting them into prison. Like a snake entering down into the hole of a small animal. So Saul was just, he, he had his radar out looking for Christians, find, going everywhere, breaking into houses, house after house after house to capture them and to throw them in jail. And notice the fact, the emphasis here is he dragged off both men and women. So he was a gender neutral persecutor. And Saul quickly became the kingpin of persecutors, the ringleader of bounty hunters. He hated Christians. He wanted all of them to be killed. He was a relentless hunter, a savage tormentor. He was a proud, arrogant Pharisee with a passion to persecute those who took up the name of Jesus. Later in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, right before Saul's conversion, he's described as still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then later on in Acts, Paul further describes himself uh, in Acts 22 when he was arrested in the temple and giving his defense before the Jewish mob that wanted to kill him then, but the Romans came and rescued him, you remember? And on the steps he turned... And he described himself as persecuting this way to the death. Binding and putting both men and women into prisons to be punished. And then later on when he's taken to Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea and he's he's incarcerated there. He has a trial before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And there he describes himself as having done many things hostile to the name of Jesus. I pursued Christians to foreign cities. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I locked them up in prisons. I cast my vote against them whenever they were put to death. And then later, Paul will describe himself to the Galatians, saying that he used to persecute the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And then to Timothy, Paul described himself as being formerly a blasphemer a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. So that Saul was to Christians what Adolf Eichmann was to the Jews in Germany in World War II. Adolf Eichmann. You remember him. He was a senior Nazi officer, the head of the Gestapo. And he was Adolf Hitler's right-hand man in carrying out Hitler's persecution of the Jews. Before the war, the Nazis initially pressured the Jews to immigrate out of Germany, to leave Germany. And the pressure they put on them was through violence and economic pressure. But later on, that strategy shifted from immigration to extermination. 
And this was Hitler's final solution. And Adolf Eichmann was the one who was primarily responsible for carrying that out. He is known as the architect of the Holocaust. The Nazi bloodhound responsible for tracking down and apprehending the Jews and deporting them to the extermination camps where they were gassed to death. The blood of millions of Jews was on his hands. And when later he was arrested and put on trial, a witness uh, testified in the trial that Eichmann had told him that he had said, that Eichmann had said, that I will leap into my grave laughing Because the feeling that I have five million human beings on my conscience is for me a source of extraordinary satisfaction. That was Adolf Eichmann. And Saul, at this point in his life, is the forerunner for such a beast as Adolf Eichmann. And it's interesting that after God in His sovereign, incredible grace saves Saul, and he becomes the Apostle Paul, he never forgot the sin and the atrocious crimes of murdering so many Christians. He never forgot that. And that's why Paul referred to himself as the foremost sinner of all. The least of the apostles. Not fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, because I persecuted the church of God. So some people say, well, when you're forgiven, you forget. You never forget. And God used that memory of all of his sin, all of his wickedness to keep him humble and to serve Christ with reckless abandon as much as he persecuted Christ prior Well, throughout his writings, Paul made no attempt attempt to cover up his sin, but rather he freely exposed the depths of his own cruel depravity so that the grace of God's mercy could shine all the brighter for saving such a wretch as he was. What a vicious wolf this man was. What a bloodthirsty enemy of Christ totally committed to ridding the nation of this scourge of Christian heretics. And yet against His own will, God would miraculously redeem and transform this violent aggressor into the amazing peaceful apostle of Jesus Christ who would be consumed with a new passion, no longer to persecute Christ, but now a passion to preach Christ. And what a testimony Saul is that there is no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace to save. You may be here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian. But maybe you've come up with the idea that, you know, I've done too many horrible things for God to ever love me, for God to ever save me. Maybe you become so weighed down with your own sins that you wonder, how could God ever bring me into heaven? Well, He saved Saul. And you're probably maybe not as vile and wicked and much of a murderer as Saul was. But if God could save Saul, He can save you. And you can come to know the love of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of all of your filthy sins. If you but repent and come to Christ, He will welcome you in open arms.
And may the grace of God open your heart and give you that precious gift of faith in Christ so that you could come to a Savior and know the love of Jesus Christ for your hearts. Saul is such an incredible testimony of how deep down God's grace will reach into the sewer of human sin to save a sinner. And He can save you too if you but come to Him. Well, in verse 2, we read of these devout men who buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. These devout men, with their loud lamentation, literally the idea of the lamentation was to beat their breast in grief. And notice it took a lot of courage to do that. It takes a lot of courage to go out into the midst of people that have just stoned to death one of your companions and to identify with them, though the world is, is showing their hate upon them, but you identify with that person. And they went and they took up the broken and bloody and bruised body of their dear brother Stephen, and they began to mourn him with loud lamentation. They were not ashamed of being identified as a Christian. They were not embarrassed to outwardly show to the public that they, they loved the same Jesus that Stephen loved. They were not afraid of the potential wrath of the enemies of Christ. But they took up His body and they went and buried it. And burial, of course, is always in light of the confident hope of the resurrection. But I don't know, sometimes, you know, you get around Christians and maybe they're loud and maybe they're borderline obnoxious sometimes. And, and there's a temptation that we have to just kind of want to duck our heads and get as far away from them as we can. Not these guys. Stephen had confronted the highest court of the Jewish nation with their sin. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart. Your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. You could say he was loud, maybe a little obnoxious, but he was full of the Spirit, obviously. But they were not ashamed of that because he named the name of Jesus. And we should not be either. We should have that kind of a bold public testimony for the name of our Savior. And then we read of this persecution. The bells have rung. Stephen has just been stoned to death. And now the persecution begins to spread through Jerusalem as it spread through Paris on the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. The death of Stephen merely whet the appetite of the Sanhedrin for more blood. It was a death of Stephen that basically like poured blood in the water for sharks. It created a, a feeding frenzy so that a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. We read of that again in verse, in verse 1. With the stoning of Stephen, the highest authority of the Jewish world just declared open season on all Christians. And Jerusalem became a very dangerous place for Christians to live. The Christians are now being driven out of their synagogues. Because remember, they're all Jews. These are all Jewish believers. 
They're all Jews who still had in the habit of going to synagogue, going to the temple. But now the synagogue begins to turn against them. As John, in his revelation, describes the Jews and their synagogue as a synagogue of Satan, so it began in Jerusalem. Now they became hostile to the church, to Christians, And now they were off limits to the Jewish church. Now notice when this persecution began to break out, what the attitude of these Jews would have been towards the Jewish believers. It was what Jesus prophesied in John chapter 16, verse 2, that they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour for everyone, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. So when these Jews began to persecute their Jewish brethren who had believed in the Messiah, they thought they were offering service to God. When they were arresting them and and condemning them to death and killing them, they thought they were offering service to God. That's how blind they had become. Jerusalem had already developed a reputation as a prophet-killing city. Remember in Matthew 23, earlier Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And so that killing, that persecution, now begins to be ramped up in the city of Jerusalem. I think part of the application for us is not to think that the world is ever going to treat you well. As Jesus said in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. I think it's imperative upon us as Christians to understand that we will never find acceptance in the world. Don't expect it. Don't look for it. Be faithful to Christ and know there will be opposition. Now, by God's common grace, our persecution in America is is very, very light. You know, the most we get now is maybe a little disapproval at the office. Maybe a sarcastic look at school. Maybe a reprimand from a teacher. That's kind of on the increase. Maybe some ruffled feathers with your friends because you're a Christian and, and they're thinking that's insane. But nothing too severe in terms of persecution in America right now. It'll probably get worse. Not, not too bad right now. But regardless, we should never let the fear of persecution cause us to hide our light under the bushel basket. It's not that we go seeking after persecution. That's foolish. But we just don't run from it when it rightfully comes our way. Being persecuted is a mark of godliness, according to Paul. It's a mark of being identified with Jesus Christ. It's a mark of an evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life so much so that you, other people actually see Jesus Christ in you. And for those who are persecuted, of course, their reward in heaven is great. You know, I wonder if persecution broke out in America on a much more intense and violent level than what it currently is. How many people within the church today would immediately defect? 
And I bet there'd be a lot. That once a persecution comes, and once we start being arrested, and once we start being thrown into prison, and once we start being beaten up on the streets, how many people then would still name the name of Jesus Christ? I hope I would. I hope we would. I trust we would. Well, the martyrdom of Stephen ignited this great uh, persecution. The second stage of this is that the persecution now ignites dispersion. We read of this again in verse 1, that on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So there's a great scattering. Uh, Kent Hughes said, following the church through Acts is like following a wounded deer through a forest. The drops of blood mark the trail. And for those of y'all who are deer hunters, uh, you know that very well. All of them began to scatter, it says in verse 1, all except for the apostles. You see, Jerusalem was still at that time the headquarters for the new Christian community, and it was right and very brave for the apostles to stay behind and hold down the fort. But the rest were fleeing. And remember, this is an appropriate response to persecution. Uh, Jesus told his own disciples in Matthew 10, verse 23, that whenever they persecute you in one city, do what? Flee to the next. And that's what they're doing. It's interesting that uh, the early church here is going through a similar experience that the Old Testament Israel went through. Remember the Old Testament Israel, this was due to their sin, but they were dispersed throughout the Assyrian and Babylonian empires when those two nations invaded Israel, conquering them, persecuting them. And so the Jews were dispersed abroad. And in a very similar way, though under different circumstances, the new covenant Israel, the Jewish believers in Christ are also being dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. There's a parallel there. It's interesting, James, as he begins his epistle, uh, writes it to Jewish believers and he describes them as the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. So they're Christians, but in his mind, they're the new Israel. They are the 12 tribes, not uh, just the physical Jews. These are spiritual Jews. These are, these are Christians now who have become the new covenant Israel. And they're being dispersed abroad. So they're beginning to scatter. And the third leg in this bringing good out of evil of of the martyrdom of Stephen is that this dispersion now ignites evangelism. We read of this again in verse 1. They're scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then down in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So the dispersion ignited evangelism. You see, the persecution helped to advance the gospel. And this is what Paul even testified in Philippians 1 in his own circumstance. He said, my imprisonment 
has resulted in the advancement of the gospel, even among the whole Praetorian Guard. So that when God brings these kinds of circumstances into our life, He brings good out of the evil. He's scattering the church, but the church is not going forward in silence. It's not running out scared for their lives. They're running out being scattered scattering the seed of the gospel, the seed of the Word of God. And in verse 1 and 4, the word for scattering here is that special word that's used for the, the, the farmer who goes out and he scatters the seed in his field so that it can take root and bear more fruit in, in, in new places. So the persecution is causing the church to scatter. But the scattering is causing the gospel to spread. You see, the persecution would not succeed because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So in the providence of God, the persecution, which is normally, this is, this is not good to be persecuted. And yet God in Christ is bringing good out of the evil. The persecution of the church was the catalyst for the expansion of the church. So that God uses the adversity to bring about the advance. One of my old seminary professors, Howard Hendricks, put it this way. That Acts chapter 8 verse 1, the scattering of the church represents the law of thermodynamics. The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. And that's exactly what's going on here. So the dark providence of persecution has a silver lining because the persecution is dispersing the gospel like, like seed on the wind, like, like pollen on the wind that's carrying it far and away so it'll settle down into the ground, take root and bear fruit, and a new church will pop up and new believers will begin to grow and the church will begin to expand. And all of that would not have taken place if the church was not scattered, and the church would not have been scattered if the church had not been persecuted. So that you can see the brilliance of God's wisdom and sovereignty in using even evil to bring about good. Tertullian, a time who was a church father, wrote at the end of the second century AD a time honored proverb. And this is what Tertullian wrote. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is proof that we are innocent. And the more you mow us down, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. And that expression describes what's going on in the book of Acts. As they begin to scatter, the persecution drives them out. But wherever they kill a Christian, the very blood of that Christian begins to be like a seed of the gospel that begins to, to, to take root and, and grow up and bear fruit for the glory of God. So the Sanhedrin and its efforts to try to bury the church in Jerusalem found that it was only burying the seed which eventually grew up and sprouted and scattered and sprouted and scattered and sprouted all the more for the glory of the gospel. 
Notice where they're being scattered to in verse 1. They're being scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, if you remember, that's if you want to turn back through real quick to Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you find that Acts chapter 8 verse 1 really is tied back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8, as we remember well, Jesus told His disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So in other words, the persecution brings about the scattering. The scattering brings about the evangelism. So they move out of Jerusalem into the next leg of the Great Commission being fulfilled. It starts out in Acts 1-8 in Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem it goes into Judea and then into Samaria. And that's exactly where they're being scattered to. So that Acts chapter 8 verse 1 is fulfilling the second phase of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It's accomplishing the great commission. And so in Acts chapter 1, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 8, who will we pick up next? Philip. Where does Philip go to preach? Samaria. is exactly what Jesus promised when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. The Great Commission is now being advanced. And Philip's ministry begins in Samaria. And the Samaritans now come into the church. And they begin to share in all of these Jewish blessings of the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant. And then later on, in chapter 10, Peter will preach to Cornelius, a Gentile. And he will come in and get Israel's Holy Spirit blessing and enter into the forgiveness of sins, and the law written on his heart, and and enter into the new covenant. And this was an issue that the Jews, particularly Peter, struggled with. No, 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 no. This is only for the Jews. It's only for Israel. A, a, A Gentile now is getting the Holy Spirit, getting these blessings. And so God had to give Peter a very miraculous vision of this net drawing down so he can begin to understand the mystery of Christ. That Gentiles now are being grafted in to the covenant tree of of Israel's uh, promises. It's an amazing thing. The kingdom of the Messiah would fulfill the promise of Psalm 2. Where God says to His enthroned Messianic Son, Ask of Me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That's what the Great Commission will bring about. The fulfillment of Psalm 2 and that incredible promise that the Father made to the Son. This is going to bring about a paradigm shift. Both in the makeup of the new covenant community and also how Gentiles come in to share in Israel's blessings. See, up to this time, a Jew thought the only way a Gentile is going to enter into our blessings is he has to become a Jew. He has to become a proselyte. He has to come in and identify with Israel. But now with the preaching of the gospel, they go from an uncircumcised Gentile directly into the new covenant blessings. And that's going to be that's what's going to be such a hurdle for so many of the Jews that they don't first have to become a Jew and then a Christian. They can immediately become a Christian.
So this persecution is going to cause the gospel to penetrate into the world of non-Jews, Samaritans, and eventually uh, Gentiles, so that the church will no longer be a branch of Old Covenant Judaism as it was kind of looked upon at this point in time. It's now going to become an international New Covenant community. And that's what's going to be so uh, incredible as we work through the book of Acts. Notice if you look at verse 4 again. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Who were those who were scattered? Well, you've got some very gifted people like Philip that we'll uh, see later on in in Acts chapter 8. But a lot of those who were being scattered were just, we'd call them the rank and file of the church. Average believers like you and me. These are the ones who are now fleeing out of Jerusalem into other parts of Judea and up into Samaria. It's just basically believers, just like we would. If we were there, we would no doubt flee, and we would flee off into these other areas. But as they go, they are preaching the Word. And this is not a Word that's, that's only reserved for, for you know, preachers. No, this, this Word, preaching the Word in verse 4, is basically the idea they were sharing the good news. That's something that any believer can do. They can share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what they were doing. Again, they weren't uh, fleeing in silence, trying to hide. But as they went out, as they were scattered, they boldly shared the gospel as they went. They would speak of Christ in their day-to-day conversations. As they went to the market to buy food, they would look for opportunities to, to bring up why they were there and bring up the name of Christ. And really, that's the most effective evangelism of all. They went out more as missionaries, really, than refugees. And the great bulk of evangelism is done in that way. It's done by the rank and file of the church, the regulars in Christ's army, if you will. We all have the responsibility to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But Will Metzger, in his uh, great book on To Tell the Truth, said in our world, probably 99.9% of all Christians are not in the ministry professional ministry. And unless everyone engages in evangelism, praying, initiating, and fervently speaking of the gospel, not much will happen. And I think it, it's, it, what this challenges us is to think of ourselves, all of us here in this room this morning, as informal missionaries. Because the church either evangelizes or it will fossilize. And we all need to understand that evangelism is not just reserved for, for, for the elders of the church and the deacons of the church. It's really a responsibility that we all have. So when was the last time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever? Well, the answer to that question for many of us probably is the same answer to that famous question in the Wolf Brand Chili commercial. If you're as old as I am and you remember those uh, Wolf Brand Chili commercials, it went like this. Neighbor, (laughs) how long has it been since you've had a big, thick, steaming bowl of Wolf Brand Chili? Well, that's too long. 
And I think when we ask the question, when was the last time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever? Well, that's too long. I think there's a sense in which the early church challenges us to to get out of our comfort zone. To not be afraid of the world. To not fear persecution or disapproval. Or not to be afraid that I might lose a friend. But to boldly identify as a follower of Jesus Christ. The church grows best, you see, when all believers look for opportunities to share the good news. This is how Christ will build His church. By using you and by using me. And sometimes God must disturb our comfort and ease to make us more mission-minded. Sometimes we can all grow too immersed in our culture and consumed by our comforts that we forget about sinners dying around us without Christ. So God will send a trial or He'll send troubles into our life that, that kind of make us realize that, you know, there's more to this life than this life. That there's a life to come. And I'm here on this earth for 70, 80 years, maybe a few more, but then I'm going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And sometimes the Lord will bring challenges and trials into our life to to help to recalibrate our spiritual settings to the heavenly standard. To see more clearly by faith the invisible realities of eternity. So that on Sunday morning we have gathered here and we are now the church gathered. But in just a few moments, we will leave this service and you know what you will become? The church scattered. And as we are scattered back to our homes, back to our friends, our families, back to our jobs, back to our acquaintances and our hobbies and our activities, let us be mindful of the fact that there are people out there without Christ and they need to hear the gospel. Only God can save them. Our responsibility is not to save anybody. Our responsibility is to share the good news with them that they can be saved if they turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Look for opportunities to share the good news. If that's hard for you, you know what you need? And it's hard for all of us. But you know what you need if you struggle in, in being able to, to name the name of Christ or share the gospel. You just need more of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power to be my witnesses. And we just need more of the filling of the Holy Spirit. All of us probably work with or know unbelievers. And let me challenge you, as I challenge myself, to think of an unbeliever, someone who needs Christ, and begin to pray for them. Pray that God would begin to prepare their hearts, to soften their hearts. Pray for yourself that God would give you an opportunity to actually share the gospel with them. And if that opportunity arises, you can start with a very non-threatening question. Like, are, are you interested in spiritual things? That's pretty non-threatening. And then just let the conversation go wherever it goes. And then look for opportunities to bring in the biblical truths that what's the biggest problem of the world today is our sin. 
That's why the world's in chaos. That's why there's so many problems. The bottom line root issue is because we have sinned against God. And remind them that according to the Bible, there is a day of judgment that's coming and everybody's going to stand before that day of judgment. And you'll have to give an account for our sins on that day. And we will all flunk that exam. Every one of us will flunk it if we don't have a Savior who's able to forgive us our sins. And God has only provided one. And that's Jesus Christ. And you can come to know forgiveness of all of your sins. You can come to know the love of Christ if you'll but come to Him and confess your sins and believe in Him and trust in Him alone to save you. So let, during this Christmas season, may the the scattering and the evangelism of the early church embolden us to speak of Jesus, God's only gift to sinners who alone can save them and give them eternal life. May we have our spiritual sensibilities recalibrated to see the realities of eternity and have a heart for the lost around us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for the early church and Your providence and how You brought such good out of this great tragedy and this terrible evil of persecution that that broke out upon the church in Jerusalem. But Lord, we, we praise You. We adore You. We magnify Your name that You used even this hatred of the world against Your people to be the very catalyst to propel them forward so that the very winds of persecution would carry the seed of the Gospel aloft on the winds into foreign lands that it might settle and take root and bear fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ. And Father, as we go forth from this room, as the church scattered, O God, help us to to be scattered with the Gospel in our hands and in our hearts. Help us to be more mindful that there is nothing more important in all of the world than for someone to come to know Jesus Christ and to be saved, lest they stand before the judgment bar of God and hear those terrifying words, depart from me for I never knew you. And oh God, use us as vehicles in sharing the gospel of life with those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Fill us with Your Spirit. Lord, this is difficult for many of us. We don't do this naturally. But by the power of Your Spirit, You can help us that we might be better witnesses for You. This we pray, Lord, for the glory of Your Son. In His name we ask it. Amen.